0: We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time 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 time. for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week. ICRT's weekly roundup of the top news stories from around the island over the past seven days. I'm Keith McConney of ICRT News. Joining me in studio today is Ross Feingold of D.C. International Advisory. Ross, thanks for being here. Good evening. And also on the show, by phone, we've got another frequent contributor, Chating Ye of the U.S.-based Ketagalan Media. Ting, thanks for joining us as well. Oh, it's a pleasure. On the show today, we've got a new MA-appointed premier and cabinet, and in just a few days, we'll have a new legislative body as well. The most decidedly not-appointed ma appointed legislative body. Uh, so we'll be trying to figure out how that's all going to play out. Then uh, we'll do a quick look back at last weekend's cold snap. Estimated damage from that is increasing every day. And uh, a bit later still, we'll talk about two separate cases of Taiwan political leaders making attempts to address historical wrongs. Uh, but from very different perspectives. But first, let's start with the big news for today. That, of course, being President Ma ying trip to Taiping Island yesterday. Now, quick refresher course, uh, Taiping Island is, of course, Taiwan's uh, largest physical claim in uh, the contested Spratly Islands. Uh, and that is part of the larger South China Sea dispute. And Taiwan's claims overlap with a a whole lot of other countries. So that means that this visit is broadly seen as aimed at boosting ROC's sovereignty claims over the island and those surrounding waters. Of course, former President Chen Sui-bian made a similar trip for similar purposes way back in 2008. Uh, But... Boosting sovereignty, that's uh, not really what uh, President Ma was talking about yesterday. Instead, we heard a lot about his South China Sea Peace Initiative, uh, which is a proposal he announced last year that calls on all the claimants in the dispute to put aside their territorial differences and focus instead on conservation efforts and resource development in the region. Uh, so he kind of made an effort to flesh out that proposal uh, just a little bit yesterday. Uh, Ross, did any of that stick out to you? Anything uh, of note that he's added into the mix there?
1: Well, the the proposal, again, it's not new. It, it follows on an earlier proposal called the East China Sea Peace Initiative, which was focused on the area around the Senkakus and, and the Giautai dispute with Japan and mainland China. And uh, that initiative actually helped facilitate the signing of a fisheries agreement with with Japan, and keeping in mind, in that case, Japan does occupy the Tai So here we have the, the sort of the opposite situation where Taiwan does physically occupy Taiping, and President Ma has proposed this plan. Uh, it's unlikely the claimants are going to sign off on it. But uh, to his credit, President Ma focused on the positives. He focused on uh, some of the green initiatives that, that are in place on Taiping Island. He focused... On on, on the location as a place for maritime research, a lighthouse, which is uh, helpful to ships, etc, so he tried to talk talk about the positive aspects of taiwan 's presence there he didn 't go there in a very bombastic way and say, "This is ours and uh, take that kind of tone and uh, obviously the u s had a very uh, strident reply <laughs> <laughs> and then
0: we 'll get to that in uh, just one second let 's focus first though on uh, the domestic politics here, how this was received domestically. Uh, and of course, one of the, the the biggest things to note is that uh, the Ma administration extended an invitation to uh, President-elect Tsai to join him on this trip. Uh, she declined. Uh, so a couple questions come out of this. Uh, why did President Ma choose now uh, to take this moment to make this trip and, uh, you know, all, all the various uh, things that are associated with it? And uh, why did Tsai choose not to join him? What can we read into that? So uh, let's throw things over to Ting. Uh, what do you see there?
2: Um, well, so first of all, I think, um, I mean, Ma is uh, very clear that the electorate does not want him in office any longer than they have to, right? So he has this sort of four-month-long transition period where he is still the president, but um, any sort of initiative that he's bringing up domestically would definitely um I would expect to be met with a lot of pressure. So um it makes kind of a, it, it it does make sense for him to sort of shift the focus a little bit um towards something outside of domestic politics in Taiwan, sort of into this sort of regional, international um arena. So I think in that sense it, it makes sense to me. Now um it I I did not expect tai Wen or anyone from the DPP to um you know agree to any of mine joe's uh in, in you know invitations to and pretty much anything right because now they're saying well in four months we're going to be in charge um there's no rush for us to look like we're actually working with you i mean you're just a laying down president trying to you know grab some attention away from domestic politics Um, uh, there's no there's no reason for the DPP to kind of get mixed up in
1: any of that but I think there's a core question here, which is what is the incoming government view or the DPP's view towards these claims? And will, will they seek to uphold these claims, whether it's Daoyu, Tai or uh, Taiping in South China Sea? Uh, and uh, the, President-elect Tsai has indicated you know, she supports the sovereignty claim. Uh, so, from that perspective, why wouldn't they have sent someone to join the delegation?
0: Perhaps a, a missed opportunity f- to uh, make it clear exactly what stance
1: uh, the Thai administration is going to take? That, that's, that's a reasonable way to look at it, yeah.
2: I mean, I, I, don't, I don't see there's any reason to go and to say, oh, you know, to, to, to sort of drive home this fact that she is not actually the president yet, and she is going only because the current president invited her, right? Because, I mean, if she really wanted to to push on this initiative or if she really wanted to, um, you know, bring this issue to the forefront, she could totally do it when she actually becomes president after May 20th. Right, so there's um, sort of just, op- it's very much in you know, a sort of this optics uh, sense, there's no need to go now and to sort of seen as, oh, I'm, I'm here because the current president, who still has all the presidential powers and etc., um, invited me and that's the only reason why I'm actually here.
1: Well, it also then calls into question whether uh, the new government will maintain this uh, South China Sea peace initiative, or they're going to junk it and, and, and replace it with some other policy. Right.
0: Uh, an interesting set of issues that kind of, uh, in a lot of ways, parallel some of the conversations we were having uh, last week as to uh, Tsai Ing-wen's role and approach uh, during this kind of limbo, uh, lame duck period of the Ma administration. So... Uh, perhaps more instances of this to come. Uh, Let's look at the regional side of things now for a moment. Uh, Of course, we heard this week, uh, kind of uh, more direct than I have ever heard before, uh, a rebuke of this trip from uh, the U.S. Uh, State Department characterized it as unhelpful, and they said that they were disappointed by the decision. Uh, I guess their fear being that uh, any uh move by the Maj administration to assert sovereignty is going to inflame regional tensions. And uh, to some extent, we heard that a little bit. Uh, the uh, Philippines, with overlapping uh, claims of their own, they uh, issued a little bit of a rebuke uh, there. Uh, but Ross, I'm curious, I mean, do, do, do you find the directness of uh, the American statement uh, surprising?
1: Yeah, most observers were very surprised by this because usually this is the kind of thing you would do behind closed doors and do quietly. Uh, Ma has had a very good relationship with the U.S. His government, his officials have had a very productive relationship. I think the U.S. has generally been appreciative at Ma's efforts for cross-strait rapprochement and things like visa-free were implemented for Taiwan travelers to the United States, etc. So it it definitely puts a bit of a a sour note uh, on the last few months of President Ma's uh, term as far as his relationship with the u s
0: and, and and what do you think is behind that that u s anxiety I mean uh, is it, should we really see this as strictly something that is directed at Taiwan or or are they perhaps uh, trying to show a, a different side of American foreign policy to other audiences such as china
1: That's an excellent question, and, and yes, part of this was directed at, at China. And as we've discussed previously, the Obama administration is is seeking China's cooperation on a range of issues, and uh, that's an important part of President Obama's foreign policy. And also Vietnam, uh, whose relationship with the U.S. has go- grown increasingly close, and uh, they 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 are one of the the more vociferous claimants in in this region. And uh, this message was probably directed at, at the U.S. Vietnam relationship as well. Uh, Ting, anything you want to add there?
2: Uh, sure. So. Um Actually, the more I think about it, the more I think it, it makes sense to me because, I mean, China's claim to the South, China Sea, basically stems from the fact that, I mean, their argument is that, oh, we this is the same water that's being claimed by the Republic of China, and we've just merely inherited those claims. And so the more that Taiwan, the Republic of China, claims shows sovereignty or makes action that you know, shows that they still hold on to their claim of, the South China Sea, it, in a sense it actually bolsters China's claims, right? So in in this sense, you know, the U.S. is almost saying, hey, I thought you were on our side. I thought, you know, we don't need somebody else to come in here and bolster in China's claims. And, you know, at, at a time where it's already kind of this hot potato, this hot mess. Mm. So, um, you know, I, I think, and, and I think it was disappointing for me at least that when um, President Ma was speaking on the island, he mentioned how... Um, our nation has first, you know, first came to Taiping Island in the Western Han Dynasty, et cetera, et cetera. And, and I, I think it's just almost like, well, are you, are you, is this Taiwan or is this China we're talking about, right? So um, I, I almost feel like it, it, makes a little, it, it makes sense to me why the U.S. is more, almost, almost more, sort of quote unquote, disappointed that, hey, I thought you were going to help us with this, not be on China's
1: side.
0: Right. So a a very ambiguous place uh, that Taiwan finds itself in in this dispute. Uh, Whose side is it on is kind of the the question mark uh, that uh, I hear from a a lot of analysts, really, when I ask that question. Uh, But let's move now and uh, focus a little bit more on domestic politics. Uh, And there's a lot to talk about here, uh, because uh, very soon we're going to find ourselves in in Taiwan in uh, somewhat of a weird limbo political netherworld. Uh, Just next week, in fact. Uh, We got a new cabinet this week. Uh, As we discussed on the show last week, some of uh, the drama that came after President Ma offered to allow President-elect Tsai uh, the opportunity to appoint the new cabinet herself. She turned that down, of course, so there goes Plan A. This week, uh, Ma moved forward with Plan B, which was promoting the Vice Premier, Simon Zhang, to the premiership. Meanwhile, uh, that legislature that was voted in on the 16th is going to take office next Monday, very next Monday, very soon already. Uh, And so the question is, who will get elected as legislative speaker? Now, uh, there's a lot of speculation this week. We've been hearing a lot about uh, the jockeying for this position. I think that a lot more news is going to happen today, tomorrow, Sunday. We're going to be hearing lots of little bits of speculation. I want to just steer clear of that because, of course, we're going to know the answer next week. So next week we can uh, do a whole show on what that answer was. So for today, let's uh, let's put aside who's actually going to uh, be in that seat uh, and ask a somewhat more basic question. Why is this speakership role going to matter?
1: Well, it's of crucial importance because the speaker drives the agenda, drives the pace at which proposed bills become laws. And uh, given the huge majority that the DPP has, there's not really going to be need for negotiation with the KMT. So the speaker is in an extraordinarily powerful position now to decide what will become law in, in, in Taiwan. And, and given the, the number of issues uh, that will be in front of the legislative UN, it's, it's crucially important, specifically with regard to economic issues, which the DPP ran their campaign on both in the legislative UN and, and the president. Uh, so to, an important aspect of this is how will President Tsai be able to work with the legislative speaker who's going to come from the same political party but might have their own ideas about what bills to pass and, and how to run the caucus. And we should also keep in mind that outgoing speaker Wang Jinping had this position for 15 years. So it, it, there's a possibility that whoever takes this position – could be there for a very long time, assuming the DPP continues to win majorities in future legislative elections. So it's a very desirable position that's going to come with extraordinary power and its importance cannot be underestimated.
0: Right on Monday, we might be getting introduced to, you know, one of the biggest political figures in Taiwan for potentially a
1: decade, decade and a half to come. That's right. So uh, I I, I hope that the public uh, has high expectations and uh, this will reflect on the DPP and, and how well they do as as the governing party, uh, both from the presidential executive branch side as well as from the legislative side. Uh, so, again, crucially important.
2: Uh, I, I just wanted to add that um, I don't know if people are aware of the, um, the way the cross-party caucus negotiations mechanism work. And um, basically a lot of bills um, end up... Sort of being discussed between the the caucuses of each party, and the you know, sort of moderated by the speaker, right? And so in this situation, um, each party, each party caucus potentially has the ability to essentially veto any bills that come through, whether or not their party is in the majority or the minority. Right? So the speaker um, is very important in sort of moderating, making sure that President ties. Uh, initiatives actually get through the, you know, the, the legislature. Um, you know, un- unlike the United States or in other countries, the the current checks and balances between the executive and the legislature in Taiwan is not. I mean, in my opinion, it's not. Um, it- it's not strong at all, right? So there's not much the president can compel the legislature to do, and uh, and vice versa, right? So so I think it definitely is very important for uh, people who expect the PPP to actually pass reforms, pass legislation to have a speaker that can kind of push things forward and make sure and make things happen in the legislature um, that, you know, is also signed on to a president agenda.
0: All right. So that's all going to be unfolding on Monday. Uh, meanwhile, here's another big political drama that we're going to be watching. So uh, President Ma still running the show on the executive side Uh, Many, of course, see him as a lame duck, but uh, I think he's made it pretty clear that he does not see himself that way. Uh, And on the other side of things, you know, when this uh, DPP legislature comes into office, uh, they're going to be a pretty strong counterbalance, going to be working in somewhat of a different uh, direction. Uh, Now, of course, Tsai is calling on the DPP caucus to respect the interim cabinet, but I think uh, these new legislators are going to be under a lot of pressure to move forward on their campaign promises. Uh, a big example, we got a little bit of a taste of that this week. We heard from student activists uh, who were calling on these legislators to move as fast as possible, just uh, you know, the second that they get into office, to scrap that controversial history high school curriculum. Uh, of course, that sparked a lot of protest last year. Uh, and if DBC- DPP legislatures- legislators did move forward on that, uh, that would uh, right off the bat put them at odds with the KMT executive. Uh, so how do we see this playing out? I mean, I, I think that they're going to be under a lot of pressure to to to, to move here. Uh, are are we really moving into a period of uh, people a fair amount of strife in Taiwan politics, Ross?
1: Well, there's there's things that could wait until the, the new president takes office, and then there's things that uh, the outgoing government might want to pursue in the next few months where I would expect legislative UN members from the DPP or the new power party to be very vociferous in objections. And and some of these might include uh, proposed business transactions. Uh, There was an example this week where the new new Power Party was protesting against regulators' decision to allow uh, Far East Tone's purchase of a cable television system to proceed, and and they were outside the regulator protesting that, uh, although approval was granted. Uh, There's a proposed investment by a Chinese semiconductor company and Taiwanese semiconductor companies, which is very controversial. Again, this is something that is within the authority of the regulators to approve now or in the next few months as they go through the documentation and, and review it, et cetera. Uh, and I would expect the, the legislative UN members to be very vociferous in their opposition to that transaction as well and, and put tremendous pressure on the regulators not to approve it. Uh, things like the high school curriculum, really that could wait you know, because uh, the, the legislators know that in a few months there will be a very friendly uh, Minister of Education, who who will probably be in agreement with them ideologically, whereas something like a business transaction, if the regulator gives its approval this week or, or five six weeks from now before May twentieth, uh, it can't be undone. So the legislative gun is going to be focused on those kinds of things that cannot be undone, rather than the things that could wait. All right. Uh, so Ting, what do you see here? I mean, uh, there 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 are
0: there's a fair amount of pressure on both sides, but do you think that they're going to be able to play nice for the next couple of months? I don't know.
2: I don't think playing nice uh, describes Taiwan politics in general. Um, but I don't know. It, it seems that uh, there's um, sort of there's sort of these high ticket, you know, high profile case, you know, cases very kind of controversial. Things, right? And then there, I, I think there's, um, you know, we talk about policies such as, um, for example, what to do about American pork, right? I mean, this, that's sort of a long term issue, but I, I feel like there are going to be issues where the DPP, uh, knowing that they're going to be taking power soon, will actually be a little bit more moderate on, I, I expect, um, just so that, you know, they don't. They they don't in four months they don't take power and then they have to sort of undo what their legislators then have already said in the last four months right does that does that make sense so um, I kind of feel that uh, for example on this um, on, uh, on 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 this um, cable TV you know cable distributor deal and also on the um, easing of the white collar uh, immigration restrictions. I, I don't see the DPP kind of coming forward to say, you know, to be the loudest one, you know, protesting about these. Rather, it's the new power party legislators and the new power party um, allies that are the, the loudest in protesting these things. So, um, I don't know. I, my expectation is this to, too, that the DPP legislators will also, um, I mean, assuming that the party can kind of hold them in check, I don't know. I I, I think they will be slightly less vociferous uh, than than we kind of expected
0: it to, to be. Absolutely. Uh, seeing how all these new players in Taiwan's political scene uh, kind of see their roles and how they approach those roles uh, is going to be very, very interesting to watch. Uh, but we're going to depart from our deep dive into politics right now and uh, going to head out for just a second because we got a little break coming up. When we come back, we're going to survey the damage after the weekend's record-breaking cold spell and we'll be looking at what happens when Taiwan's politicians take on historical wrongs. All that, after the break. Welcome back to Taiwan This Week, ICRT's weekly look at the top stories from around Taiwan. I'm Keith Menconi, joined by Chey Ye and Ross Feingold. Kicking off the second half, tut-tut looks like Snow? In Taiwan, yes, indeed, we got some snow in places that have never seen snow before. We saw snow last week as Taiwan found itself caught in a massive cold front that kind of swallowed the whole uh, south and Southeast Asian region. Uh, And while I'm sure plenty of folks enjoyed the snow on Yangmingshan, not to mention the sleet in Taoyuan and the hail in Jinmen, of all places. Uh, that snow day absolutely did leave a mark. Uh, we'll start with the tragic human cost, and alarmingly high number of deaths have been attributed to the cold snap. I've seen uh, numbers as high as in the mid eighties. I- I've seen slightly lower numbers uh, elsewhere, uh, but the take-home point is that a, a lot of people uh, really did suffer, and 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 many uh, succumbed to uh, you know ailments that were exacerbated um, by this cold snap. Uh, then, of course, uh, we've got substantial economic costs as well, estimates for agricultural and aquacultural losses, uh, aquacultural, of course, being fish, uh, number of fish farms were hit pretty hard. Uh, well, those have been revised up nearly every day this week. Uh, the latest numbers I've seen are 1.75 billion NT in agricultural losses alone. Uh, that would make it a new record over the past 17 years. So, uh, this cold snap came with quite a bit of a punch. Uh, and uh, so, I guess the question, looking back on this now, is: uh, is Taiwan just really very vulnerable to cold weather? Uh, you, you know, is this just inevitable when you get weather this cold, or was there more that could have been done?
1: Well, there, there's uh, some people who would say it's due to climate change and, and uh, Taiwan being. Located next to the water, and, and these various factors come into play. Uh, but I think the larger issue here is even if the damage from aquaculture and, and, and agriculture cannot be prevented, you know, the the human loss uh, should have been preventable, and it goes to this this issue of disaster prevention and, and the lack of a, a appropriate level of a safety culture in Thailand. And unfortunately, in the last few years, we've seen this all too many times with both man-made disasters and, and natural disasters, and what is the response to these kinds of events. So uh, w- whether it's the central government level or the city government, county government level, where social service agencies might, might be a little closer on the ground to elderly who are susceptible to uh, having pre-existing conditions exasperated by the cold or, or did die because of the cold, uh, this really could have been preventable. So if, if the high end of the estimate of deaths, which we, we've seen in the news, something like 85, if that's true, that, that really is a tragedy and should have been preventable.
0: Now, an interesting thing that I learned, I suppose I should have already knew, known this, but an interesting thing that I learned uh, from the fallout from all of this cold is that apparently a lot of people got trapped up on uh, snow-covered mountains over the weekend. Um, And the reason that they couldn't get back down is because those roads couldn't be cleared. Uh, There was a lot of snow on the roads and they couldn't be cleared because apparently Taiwan only has one snowplow. And in a way, that kind of makes sense. You know, Taiwan is a tropical island. How often are you really going to need a snowplow? But
1: But I I, I would say this, again, goes to the same issue because uh, every... Year when there's a a possibility of a light snow, uh, not as much or as cold as last weekend, people will drive up to the mountain just to experience it, right? And and that's again this this issue of a, a, a safety culture or the lack of one, mm. and, and allowing people to drive up to the mountains when there's the possibility of snow when the roads might be dangerous whether there's an accumulation of snow or the roads are just slick and icy and cars could slide Uh, so why are the authorities letting people drive up to the top of the mountain when there's the possibility of dangerous road conditions
0: a healthy respect for uh, mother nature is of course paramount in all cases all right well on that note we're going to leave that story behind and uh, move to our last story for the broadcast portion today Uh, That story being, politics met history twice this week, uh, in a nice symmetrical sort of way, too. So we've uh, got one story now from the DPP end of things, and uh, one from the KMT end of things. Uh, Let's start with that DPP story. And uh, President-elect Tsai Ing-wen's pledge to apologize for historical wrongs committed against Taiwan's Aboriginal peoples uh, after she takes office. Um, So I I think probably a lot of our listeners will be fairly familiar with uh, the history of Taiwan and uh, how Han settlers colonized the island and uh, came into contact and often conflict with uh, the aboriginal dwellers that were already here. Um, So she's, of course, referring to that history. Um, But Ting, uh, I believe uh, you pointed out that this is not the first time that apologies have been issued uh, on this issue, uh, so how do you expect this to be received by uh, Aboriginal folks here in Taiwan?
1: Mike,
2: I mean, obviously, I don't speak for um, the Aboriginal community in Taiwan, um, and uh, I don't presume to be. And if and I'm just saying personally, if I were in that position, I would think, well, you know, we've heard a lot of apologies um, in the past by Taiwanese presidents, right? And so I think, I think at, at, at this and age where people um you know assumably have a little bit of say in in policy, right? In in how government treats them. But I, I just think, you know, it's time for for the it's time to see actual policy changes. It's actually time to see laws being amended to be more sensitive and to be more accommodating to um Aboriginal interests, Aboriginal traditions and um, you know, I I think uh you know for example there was a um, sort of a controversial case where um a aboriginal man uh, was uh found to um uh was hunting for um for for game in the and and I think that caused a lot of tension um between people who said well you know that's a aboriginal tradition you can't take that away from us versus uh you know the state's interest in protecting you know the wildlife and nature and so on and so forth so I think um other than you know sort more symbolic gestures i think it's uh if i were in that part of that community i would be demanding more um i would be demanding more specific policy changes rather than symbolic gestures
0: uh so 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 ross i mean uh, symbolic gestures do you think that uh it, it's mostly an empty statement or, or do you see more significance there
1: well, uh I, although I, I agree with with t- on, on changing laws to be more sensitive to to the uh, cultural uh, aspects of the relationship between the Aboriginals and, and the Han, uh, the the other issue at play here is the lack of opportunity, the lack of economic development in many of the Aboriginal communities, and, and social problems that exist there, such as alcohol and drug abuse, and uh, part of Uplifting those communities is is actually putting sufficient resources into education and and, uh, economic activity in those parts of Taiwan. And uh, I think President Tsai should also be thinking about those kinds of initiatives as well.
0: And uh, staying with this uh, just very briefly uh, for a little bit more, uh, another notable outcome of the 2016 legislative races is that uh, there are more aboriginal legislators than ever before in uh, Taiwan's democracy. Uh, is that is that going to translate into political power and the ability to change some of these issues?
1: Well, the, the good thing is is that the, the aboriginal legislators are in each party. So uh, even the new New Power Party, one of their five legislators, is a longtime activist from the aboriginal community. So that's an excellent development in in the sense that it it helps all the legislative UN members within each party caucus understand the needs of the aboriginal community. Mm. All right. Well, uh, an
0: interesting parallel unfolded this week. Uh, As we said, this is on the KMT side of things. Uh, This week, Taiwan observed for the first time uh, International Holocaust Remembrance Day. Uh, That is a day established by the UN General Assembly back in 2005, so it's been going on for a while. Uh, And Ma was in attendance at uh, an event that was marking that right here in Taiwan. So I'm going to turn things over to uh, Ross right now, uh, but we're going to introduce you in a a way that we generally don't uh, because you have another role here in uh, Taiwan as the Taipei Jewish Center chairman. So you were in attendance at this event. uh, And could you tell us a little bit of the significance of uh, Taiwan acknowledging or taking part in the remembrance of uh, this horrific blotch on world history?
1: Yeah, so the UN, as you mentioned, established this International Remembrance Day in 2005, and there are events held in over 100 countries, uh, usually uh, prayer services and, and, and speeches about the event, sometimes speeches by survivors or children of survivors of the Holocaust. So it's always good when when Taiwan uh, will participate in an event that, that's worldwide, an event that is sanctioned by the United Nations. So it, it, it keeps Taiwan connected to, to uh, the wider world on a very significant historical event. Uh, President Ma made made a very uh, moving speech. Uh, The interesting thing about his speech, though, is he spoke at length about how Germany has made efforts to apologize for its actions during the war and for uh, perpetuating the Holocaust. Uh, And he contrasted that with Japan, which uh, arguably has not made the similar efforts of Germany to apologize and offer compensation. And this came up very recently with the Comfort Women issue, uh, where, where Korea and Japan signed an agreement, but Taiwan and China have not uh, so President Ma drew a great contrast between atoning for historical wrongs uh, not very long ago, in fact, just just sixty seven years ago in World war two uh, and that came on the same day that president elect Tsai announced that she was going to issue an apology to the aboriginals so it's it, as you said it 's an interesting parallel where where President Ma pointed out one. Uh, actors' uh, actions to uh, apologize and called out another. Uh, but it raises the question about uh, the KMT's historical wrongs. Yes, of course it
0: does. Um, but, you know, whenever you call out anybody on the historical wrongs uh, that, you know, is in the history of that country, you, you, you can always raise this issue of relativism. I mean, every country has some blood on their hands. Every country has some dark part of their
1: history that they'd rather forget. Um, so, uh, well, I thought it was interesting. For example, when you was saying Germany has made all these efforts at education, educating the the German public about what happened during the Holocaust, to ensure that it never happens again in Germany, or this kind of ideology never takes hold in Germany, uh, I thought it might have been interesting if he had said, "And we have also sought to apologize for events like 228."
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
1: yeah, that would be a. And we've also sought to. Uh, educate people about 228, which was uh, per- perpetuated by the KMT government, right. uh, and we built a museum and a memorial, right. It, right. and he didn't mention that at all. That would I, be I, more stable ground to build a conversation on. I thought it w- it, it, it would have been appropriate, and it would have reflected very well on him had he done that. Uh, now, looking forward a little bit,
0: uh, the, some, some of those wrongs uh, in Taiwan's own history, I, I think that... Uh, we heard a lot more about that during uh, the last DPP administration and in the changing of uh, history textbooks at that time. The pendulum swung in a particular direction. Uh, do we think that Tsai is is going to pursue uh, a similar kind of policies or, or is she going to apply the same kind of
1: status quo rationale
0: in other areas outside of the cross-strait domain?
1: Well, the DPP... Even during this election campaign, if not Tsai herself, but certainly uh, party leaders, legislative candidates, did talk about tra- transitional justice, and that that does mean investigating historical wrongs. And obviously, they're talking about historical wrongs by, by previous KMT governments, specifically during the martial law era. Uh, so I, I don't see that issue going away. I, I don't see how Tsai Ing-wen could avoid it, especially being a lawyer herself. Hmm. Uh, but uh, it, it's – going to be something worth watching because she said let's focus on economic issues but there'll be definitely pressure in the party to pursue some of these issues whether it's the kmt's party assets which is an issue that never goes away or other very specific incidents of people who were jailed and, and, and writing or correcting the historical record for individuals and, and things like that uh ting what do you see there
2: um, I think one big difference between the Transrabian administration versus the incoming Thai administration is that back between 2000 and 2008, I didn't think there was a appetite in the society for sort of pursuing um, very aggressive policies um, to, to sort of dig up the past, to, to sort of prosecute historical wrongs, and to you know basically come down hard on the KMT for the, to ask them to sort of answer to. To some of these, you know, things that they basically covered up for you know, half a century, and but I think nowadays, I, I think nowadays, I think it's sort of reversed. But I think there's a lot more pressure on the populace to say, okay, now we have the DPP who's in power, both legislatively and also in the executive. Let's, you know, put this. Let's, let's get this done. Let's do this, you know, once and for all. Let's, you know, really figure out what happened. Let's, you know, have some of these people and you know, brought to justice. And I think. It'll be on the Taiwan administration's part to sort of hold that populist uh, or, you know, you might even say populist sentiment back a little bit and say, look, guys, you know, we have we have to also work on the economy. We will have to also work on some of these geopolitical issues. Um, You know, I, I think it's up to it's up to her to sort of balance those those. Um, interests in the the upcoming years.
0: All right. So uh, yet another theme, we've identified a whole bunch of them, both this week and last week, yet another theme uh, that we will likely need to be following as the next administration gets into high gear. But last up for today, this is our our bonus story for our podcast listeners out there, and this is one that is uh, really relevant to uh, our expat listeners um, because the issue of white-collar foreign labor has been in the news over the last couple of days. Ministry of uh, Labor f- kind of floated some ideas for loosening some of the regulations on who can be hired as a white-collar worker here in Taiwan. Uh, but things change quickly. Uh, the face of politics in Taiwan certainly has changed. And now the Ministry of Labor has backtracked on uh, some of those proposals Uh, So now it's uh, very much unclear whether or not uh, those proposals are going to be followed through on, uh, leaving, uh, I think, a lot of white-collar workers and a lot of employers a a little bit disappointed. Uh, Those restrictions would have uh, loosened capital requirements, salary salary requirements. Basically, uh, those are important because uh, if you're a small company, you don't have a lot of capital on hand. So a large capital requirement means that only larger companies have the ability to hire uh, foreign workers. So definitely a, a, a reversal on the policy uh, Ross, what do you see behind this pushback
1: uh, i 'm going to call this protectionism and i 'm going to call it fear of the unknown, which lacks a real basis in this uh, and, and in many ways, I, I think it 's similar to some of the objections we saw uh, almost two years ago to the services agreement with china and and that uh, people are not necessarily threatened by allowing more foreign white-collar professionals to work here. Uh, but people just want to look at an easy target. And, and oh, foreigners, and, and, oh, China, right? So if we sign a services agreement, then a lot of services are going to be moved from Taiwan to China. That, that's really not necessarily what was going to happen with the services agreement. But it was a narrative that took over. And, and now we see that same narrative playing out again. And then this really goes to the larger question, which is, is Taiwan open for business or not? Mm. And it certainly behooves the new government, you know, given that the outgoing government has such a short amount of time left, but it behooves the new government to clearly tell the investor community, not just local companies foreign companies as well, um, that Taiwan is open for business. Taiwan should be a candidate to join RCEP. Taiwan should be a candidate to join TPP. Going in the other direction with more protectionism does not send that message.
0: Mm. Uh, so uh, Ting, 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 once again, I mean, what's what's your sense of what's behind this? I mean, we heard calls for this from uh, groups like the New Power Party, uh, groups that are uh, more skeptical of uh, trade deals and globalization and the like.
2: I mean, I, I think, you know, you sort of see on the news, it's the same group of people like um, uh, Attorney Lai Zhongqiang, right, who's been very... Um, long time critic of um, trade deals with China, um, and people, you know, Huang Guotang, right? These people who are, uh, you know, now part of the New Power Party, but, you know, came up through these, um, anti, you know, media, anti, you know, basically business with China. And I think back then it was easy to say, okay, well, it's, it's, it's business of China and China is, has, has, and, and China has these, uh, you know, non peaceful intentions, right? So it's it's sort of easy to say, okay, well, you know, that's not a good idea. But I think right now, if you're talking about, you know, globally, um, that's sort of a different story, right? And so I think, um, you know, from, from what I've seen is that there are still people who say, well, you know, this is sort of a way for the government to open up for more Chinese influx, you know, for for Chinese, uh, you know, workers to come to Taiwan. You know, and and on the other hand, uh, the other, you know, argument against uh, this the, the easing of the restrictions is that well, you know, you already have such a high, you already have such high levels of youth unemployment. Um, you know, what will happen if you then open up uh, companies to allow them to hire, uh, you know, foreign workers at a at a cheaper price, um, essentially? So I think, I think there's definitely a lot of anxiety around um, sort of this. this, this there's a lot of anxiety around the, the the labor market, right, and, you know, unemployment rates, for especially for the young people. Um, you know, now I, I think just personally I would say, you know, I, I'm all for a more liberal uh, and more open immigration policy in the long run. Now, whether or not, um, you know, I, I think it's up to the government to sort of really figure out, okay, is this the right, is, this, is right now the right time to do it, right? Um, you know, is, is 2016 the right year to do it? And especially for the Ma government, you know, is, is again this four months before he leaves office. This, especially this week before the new legislature takes office, is this the right time to do
1: it? So, but but we're, we're, there seems to be this irrational assumption that there'd be a massive influx of white-collar foreigners at the lower end of the salary scale rushing to come work in Taiwan. I mean, we. We, we all love Taiwan, of course. That's why we're here. But that that doesn't mean that thousands of white-collar foreigners are going to suddenly show up tomorrow just because these restrictions are relaxed. And again, we're talking about jobs at the lower end of the salary scale, junior people, startup companies. Uh, people are just, are not going to be running to come to Taiwan to take up those jobs. Again, I, I think it's just more an optical thing that, that shows that Taiwan is, is a good place to do business and that – even startup companies could have the flexibility to hire the staff that they want to hire. Again, we're, we're talking about companies in Taiwan that are generating economic activity in Taiwan. So if they hire a few more white-collar Foreigners, it's not a threat to the Taiwan workforce. So to argue otherwise, I, again, I think it's just irrational.
0: Yeah, and I'm just I'm just going to parrot some of. I mean, I've I've interviewed, uh, done a number of interviews on this topic, and I've I've spoke with spoken with a group uh, known as uh, Forward Taiwan. They've done a, a lot of work on. Uh, immigration issues and visa issues and work issues in Taiwan, and their big point is that the kind of person that uh, this new policy would allow in uh, would largely be a uh, younger white-collar workers, workers that are newer to the industry, but uh, generally in uh, creative sectors, uh, folks that maybe uh, are are not necessarily uh, firmly ensconced in any given industry, but are coming at uh, things with a lot of new ideas, and they could help Taiwan's creative industries uh, in a way that, uh, you know, you just, you, they don't have access to do that anymore. And instead, a lot of Uh, Foreigners are really. There's only one kind of work they can get. They can teach English, and that's it. When, uh, in fact, uh, they come to Taiwan with a background that would allow them to do some pretty useful things for Taiwanese companies. So that's the kind of point that they're making. Um, uh, And uh, Ting, I'm wondering, would you would you agree with that?
2: I mean, I I think I would. I I would tend to agree. I think this, um, you know, the sort of having a hard salary number cap, um, you know, kind of really restricts you know your ability to hire people right i mean we it, it you know i i'm based in silicon valley right and people work for you know very low cash salaries you know all the time right if they can get equity if they can get some sort of stock options if they can um you know get paid in some sort of way when the company just starting right and the other industry you know and, and we're talking about you know ngos for example right if ngos or or nonprofits or um, even you know Legislators wanted to hire people who um, are citizens of other countries. And, you know, some of this, I think, also applies to people with Taiwanese descent who are, you know, either, you know, grew up in, you know, overseas or, you know, was born overseas who, you know, say, hey, I wanted to work in Taiwan. I wanted to come back to my, you know, my parents' homeland and, you know, see what the fuss is all about and really do something about it. Uh, These people can't be very easily hired as well. So I think, um, you know, I, I think I think there has to be some sort of way to creatively get around this, you know, sort of hard number cap, right? Because you know, with the hard number cap, you're going to have to change that number according to inflation or deflation or your economic, you know, situation, you know, on a regular basis, anyway, right? So why not why not approach this, you know, sort of more creatively?
0: Yeah. Well, this is uh, this is big confession time for me, actually. Uh, if white-collar labor lives hadn't been relaxed over the last couple of years, I couldn't even have this job. Because uh, there was a time where the sort of job that I have now, you needed a master's degree. Uh, or else, you know, you couldn't even get this job. So... I'm a direct beneficiary of this, so I guess maybe I shouldn't even be leading this conversation. I'm coming at this from a somewhat biased angle, um, but uh, absolutely. I mean, you do understand, though, uh, the anxiety over uh, stagnated wages, uh, especially among younger workers in Taiwan. So that uh, that anxiety is absolutely very understandable. And uh, as Ross says, uh, I think that we'll all be looking forward to seeing uh, exactly how this administration takes on that issue. uh, And hopefully, they can at least uh, present a plan that's clear and explains, you know, their rationale and explains uh, how they're going to uh, address this issue and why they're doing what they're doing. So. We are going to look forward to that in the next weeks and months and years and uh, for a lot of time to come. But uh, that is our cue to end this show. It was a very long show. So thanks for all the folks out there who are still listening in. We do appreciate it. You can, of course, send us your thoughts on this week's major stories on the Facebook page or on our blog. You'll also be able to find this program online at the ICRC website and on iTunes. If you are listening through iTunes, please take a second to rate and review the show. Let's us know what you're thinking and helps other people discover the program. Signing off from the iCRT studio, I'm Keith Menconi, joined by Ross Feingold. Thank you, Ross. Good night. And Chasing Yeh, thank you as well. Good night. And thank you all for listening. See you again next time on Taiwan This Week. Tune in again next Friday evening at 8.30 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT
2: FM 100.